On the show today, Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, Executive Director of Patient Engagement at Emmy, interviews Tori Fields, Senior Program Manager for Palliative Care at Blue Shield of California. She'll also speak with Dr. Michael Fratkin, President and Founder of Resolution Care. Together, they'll discuss the state of palliative care, what the pain points are in the space, what patients are experiencing, and what can be done to improve palliative care conversations. I'm your host, Kendall Antikyer, and you're listening to Bottom Line Radio. Welcome to Bottom Line Radio, Emmy's podcast on everything patient engagement. I'm Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, and joining me is Tori Fields and Dr. Michael Fratkin. Thank you both for joining us, and let's get started with you, Tori. So we know that 60% of Americans want their end-of-life wishes respected, but many of them either don't have the opportunity to discuss those wishes with their clinician, or the conversation just never is prompted. Um, I know that you're in a new role at Blue Shield of California and that your organization has new initiatives underway to try and improve palliative care conversations. Can you provide a little background on that? So my role at Blue Shield of California uh, really focuses around creating a sustainable service model for palliative care throughout the state of California. Um, I'm really acting as an advocate not only for the members who purchase Blue Shield of California, but also for the providers in our network, so that our members have access to high quality palliative care services wherever they might be in the state, rural, urban, uh, HMO, PPO. Okay, thanks. So what do you think are the biggest pain points in palliative care? The biggest pain point that I see is uh, unsustainable reimbursement or funding for the field. Um, it's, it's interesting to me because palliative medicine is really the only specialty that has no reimbursement attached to it. And yet, the thing that's the most inevitable about all of our lives is that we die. And we actually are going to need providers to really walk us through, help navigate us through the system, and to listen to us. When I was a patient, I actually um, had a serious illness as a child. and I had a mom who didn't know how to navigate the system herself, and she had to advocate for me. And much of the time, she really just leaned on physicians to tell her what was best for me as her child. I think we're in a different, I think that we're in a different time now, really, where people want to advocate for themselves and they want to make informed decisions about their health care mm-hmm. that's in alignment with their goals and values and especially in a, such a critical time like serious illness mm-hmm. we also want to make sure that if we're taking care of a loved one that we're able to be the make the best decisions on behalf of that person and be educated enough to do it mm-hmm. Another thing that I really see as a pain point in that same area of healthcare financing and unsustainable uh, funding for providers is that actually healthcare costs are the number one driver of personal bankruptcy in this country. And why? Really? Because they're staying in the emergency room. They're going to the emergency room. They are staying in an inpatient setting. And we know that 70% of people actually want to die at home, but in California, a little over 70% of the population is dying in the hospital. 
And that's not just your Medicare patients. Those are patients who have serious illness and really need help navigating the system and understanding what their benefits are so that they don't have to pay so much out of pocket. Mm -hmm. the, what I see as my role is making sure that we have a workforce who is able to help people understand their goals and values and translate that into a treatment plan that actually works for them and then helps that patient understand how to talk to their family about what their goals and wishes are so that their families feel prepared if something were to happen. Absolutely. So how are you trying to address those pain points, especially helping clinicians to have palliative care conversations? What kind of resources do you provide? I think we need to be mindful of why clinicians got into the field in the first place. And that really depends on what the specialty is. Um, but what I know about clinicians is that they always want to be a clinician working with a patient. They want to be able to operate at the top of their license. They want to practice good quality healthcare. And what our system has put on these providers is 80% of their time being administrative time. So they're taken away from the patient and from what the patient wants to fill out a code and a diagnosis and bill a claim. Mm -hmm. And if we can streamline that process as a health plan, that's only going to benefit the quality of care of that patient. So really, to get to your point about resources, I think, number one, as a health plan, what I'm doing is making sure that our providers don't have to bill a code for everything that they do, um, that we're working on value-based agreements and quality contracting instead of uh, fee-for-service, mm -hmm. but that we also have them working at the top of their license, not reinventing the wheel. So these physicians don't really have the time or the expertise in creating educational materials. Mm -hmm. But if they're going to be in the home, there are going to be times when they're out of the home. And we need to leave something behind in order to change the culture of, of what our patients do after a physician leaves the home. I completely agree. At Emmy, we're working to create those types of resources that educate and pre-educate because a lot needs to happen outside of the home in order to make sure patients and their families have the time to consider their options, discuss them. Uh, and we feel these conversations aren't ones you should have in brief conversations during a clinical encounter. It's best when they start at home. So what do you think about that approach? That's a really great way to go, and, and one of the things um, that you have to offer is really this, what is hospice, um, and, and looking at what hospice includes and how it can support a family. If you ask people if they want to go to hospice, oftentimes they think that that means their physician uh, and that their family has to give up hope for them, but really... When people get into hospice, hospice has the highest satisfaction rates, and oftentimes in the qualitative research, you see patients and their families wishing that they had gone to hospice sooner. And so the pre-education is really necessary. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have a point in time that we didn't have before, where providers can bill for advanced care planning conversations. Wouldn't it be great if you had that advanced care planning conversation with a patient and then you said, hey, 
I just want to tell you what your treatment options are, and one of them is hospice. How about you watch this video just to see what you might be interested in doing later on? Mm -hmm. And that's what's really important, because when we are, a lot of the time, our physicians are so scared about having this conversation with a patient about hospice, because it means they had to give up on their patient. We're so, we're so intent on curing everyone that we forget about healing everyone. Mm -hmm. And if they were able to say, hospice is just another option for you, take a look way before they have to try and get somebody into hospice because they're in a dire situation. Right. That's the way to go about it. Right. It's not about now. It's about what is right for you. And what we really try to introduce is the concept that the best way patients can have control over their choices when the time comes is to talk about it and to learn about it now. So that pre-planning has to occur for your choices to be both known and upheld. The patient education, the pre-planning is really important also when somebody um, gets a diagnosis. So if you're a caregiver and your partner is diagnosed with cancer, there is a point of denial that everyone goes through and we never know what length of time that denial is. But what we need to do is better equip our caregivers and the families of loved ones to really know about families of somebody who has a serious illness to really know what might happen next and what does this diagnosis even mean? Yeah, I think there's a lot of assumption in the palliative care space, primarily by clinicians, that patients understand not just their diagnosis, but also the trajectory of their illness. And really that understanding is often so limited. And then people become frustrated when they feel no one told them what their diagnosis really meant for them in the long term and what it meant for their family and their loved ones as well. We conducted focus groups with patients with serious illness uh, and their caregivers, caregivers of people with serious illness. And we actually separated those two groups because we wanted to make sure that caregivers were able to speak freely about taking care of a loved one with serious illness. Um, and we wanted to make sure that the people with the serious illness were able to speak freely and not scare their caregivers. Mm -hmm. And some really common themes came up uh, with people who had long-term neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's and ALS. The thing that really was interesting to me was that they all shared this common uh, experience with a provider telling them they had Parkinson's or ALS or MS, and then saying, all right, I'll see you in a year. Really? Yeah, it's because when you get diagnosed with Parkinson's, your decline is slow. And these people had no resources. So you get on Google and you start Googling Parkinson's and you see people who have full-fledged Parkinson's and it is terrifying. And I think that it's so much it's, it's really on the healthcare system to make sure that patients get the education or the information that they need, and they are able to either take it home and put it away until they're ready to face it, mm -hmm. or take it home and give it to a loved one who is maybe more planful yeah. and ready to face it, um, and make sure that it's on their time schedule and we as a healthcare system make sure that things are patient focused enough that we can meet people where they are, not only in the stage of life or in illness, but also in their stage of acceptance. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. And we as an industry can probably become better at assessing people's readiness because there's creating information for patients to watch on their own time, but we also need to consider where are they on that continuum to actually be able to absorb the information. So that's really interesting. So we've talked about the pain points in palliative care, and I'd really like to get Dr. Fratkin's opinions as well, because I think as we talk about what the issues are, we also need to discuss solutions. So Dr. Fratkin, just to start, what to you do you think is the biggest cause of concern in the palliative care space? The spectacular amount of suffering in two really important groups of people. One group of people are those with serious illness and their families, the amount of avoidable suffering that they experience in our broken healthcare system. And the other is another group of people that are quite near and dear to my heart, um, my colleagues, uh, the physicians and nurses and social workers and chaplains suffocating inside of a healthcare system not designed to actually deliver value to people, but to frankly exploit them for their potential uh, economic uh, value. That's a really great point. I'd like to think and hope that the majority of clinicians having these conversations are doing so to support their patients more than limit the amount of care they receive from an economic and financial standpoint, but it's always good to be aware of that reality, even if in the smallest sense it can and does happen. So tell us why you started Resolution Care, and how are you leveraging technology to address the industry issues we've been talking about today? Now, the reason to do this is that we're all living and dying, and the insanity of a healthcare system that inflicts more suffering on people in the last part of their life than it relieves uh, is an area to improve. It's a place to put my energies, it's a place for me to generate impact. Um, the way we're doing it, like I said before, is that we really don't see any difference between those people lying in the bed over there, uncomfortable, and the people coming to the bedside to serve them. Uh, and so what we're up to is simply people taking care of people and doing what makes sense for people. Um, and our gig, our approach, is we've created a technology-enabled, home-centered palliative care program uh, using telemedicine as a mechanism for uh, meeting people right where they are on their own terms in their homes. So what kind of feedback do you get from the use of your technology? You know, at Emmy, we think about things similarly, and we design solutions that are to be used at the patient's time of readiness and comfort, like you said. But there's also a lot of feedback that we hear are concerned that technology makes these kinds of conversations less personal or colder. But in our experience, we find people are actually more receptive to using technology with some of these conversations. So what do you find? Well, people kind of look at you funny and kind of go, huh, <laughs> that's outside the range of my blinders. I can't quite see that. Um, they look at the world from within uh, the fragmented system. They take for granted that uh, sick folks uh, get up in the morning, take a shower, call their neighbor or brother-in-law to take off work to give them a ride to their 120th visit for a lab test or x-ray or a physician visit or a 
emergency department visit or whatever it is, infusion center, um, and then they uh, get themselves across traffic, across town, or across miles of my rural environment. Uh, they park, they pull the wheelchair out of the trunk, they schlep themselves into the clinic where they sit on crappy furniture, uh, deal with snotty front desk staff, and the endless uh, sequence of the very same redundant clipboard and the very same People magazine with Sarah Palin on the cover that they've been looking at for five years. Um, and then they go in and they see a stressed out doctor who glances at them over their right shoulder while tapping away at an electronic medical record and feeling as if the world is conspiring against that doctor. Uh, and then they get home. Um, instead of that, what they get is an email with a hyperlink and they click on that hyperlink and instantly they are in a relational space with their physician. Um, we don't like taking care of patients in clinics and hospitals. We are oriented towards taking care of people, not patients. What people don't realize is that the use of this technology in this way is in some ways vastly superior to what we take for granted as just the way things are. So that's a really great point. And what I think is really interesting is that whether it's in an online console, like with what you're doing or a multimedia program, what we're talking about is supporting and providing information in a really intimate space. And again, I think people think of technology as really cold, but the way we're talking about it today, it feels really warm. For me, even in my first encounter with people, when we, uh, I meet them uh, purely on a, a video conference, um, the average time before the technology disappears is about 35 to 45 seconds. We get them on, we get them comfortable, we adjust it to put uh, their eyes, I match my head size with my, mm -hmm. uh, to their head size. Um, it takes about 45 seconds for all the technology to disappear um, rather than uh, two and a half hours to arrive mm -hmm. uh, in an exam room in a paper dress for your doctor. Um, it's amazing. Absolutely. Well, I am so glad I had a chance to speak with both of you today, and I want to thank both of you for joining us. And it looks like the bottom line for this conversation is that there's a lot we can do to improve palliative care conversations, and leveraging technology can actually provide a warm, intimate space for patients and clinicians to meet to consider this really difficult topic. Great insights today from Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, Tori Fields, and Dr. Michael Fratkin. Don't miss out on future shows. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast at the bottom of the page. And if you're interested in learning more on this topic, you can view our webinar featuring Dr. Ira Bayak and Dr. Sherry Kittleson as they discuss how to turn difficult conversations into clinical opportunities. I'm Kendall Anikire, and thanks for listening to Bottom Line Radio.